Canada has joined the international community with a series of escalating sanctions and measures targeting Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine. This has included economic sanctions, military supplies, and a ban on Russian product. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post political reporter Ryan Tumulty joins me to discuss Canada's anti-Russia efforts, the international cooperation in support of Ukraine, and what's at stake if these measures aren't successful. Don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Ryan, the world has watched for days in horror as Russian forces have invaded Ukraine, have hit military targets, civilian targets, and almost a united front across the Western world we've seen sanctions and escalating measures against the Russian regime. Today, Canada has suggested that we want the International Criminal Court to speed up its investigation into Russia. What can you tell us about what Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie announced Tuesday in Geneva? Yeah, so she was in Geneva at a conference on this escalating situation. And along with all of uh, many foreign ministers from the West, they walked out of a speech by the Russian foreign minister where he attempted to put a, a spin on or justify this invasion. And then she announced that she was asking the International Criminal Court to speed up its investigation of potential war crimes happening as Russia invades Ukraine. The International Criminal Court was already looking into this, they said. And so certainly, you know, there's additional pressure here now coming from Canada and probably many of our allies to speed that up. That on its own may not have a huge impact, though, because Russia has withdrawn from the ICC. They started that process uh, back in 2016. Mm -hmm. Even if they were members, it's hard to imagine Vladimir Putin turning over his top generals to an international court like that. But it does speak to what you were talking about, the way that the world is speaking really, you know, in one voice on this issue in, in condemning Russia for its actions and making clear that there will be not only short-term consequences, but long-term consequences for what they've done. What is it that they're looking into with Russia in relation? Is it the invasion itself that they're suggesting are crimes against humanity? I am not an expert in war crimes. I think it'll go beyond just the invasion itself, though. Certainly, we're getting some really disturbing reports out of Ukraine today about the possibility that Russia will be firing on civilians, that it'll be firing more on cities than on necessarily military targets. And that changes the nature of the conflict and and potentially opens up Russian forces to these charges. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie is in Europe. She's, I believe, on her way to Poland. She's announced escalating measures against Russia in relation to the invasion of Ukraine. On Monday, there was another set of measures taken by the government. What was Monday's announcement? So on Monday, we announced more anti-tank weapons would be sent to Ukrainian forces. Obviously, this is something you know they need as they stare down the Russian army. That was the big part of the announcement. On Sunday, they announced more non-lethal tools being sent to Ukraine. So that's stuff like gas masks and body armor and helmets, which you know can be a very important tool for the Ukrainian forces who are facing this Russian army moving in on them. But generally speaking, the pattern has been 
sort of twofold, I would say. First is the financial sanctions. So we've done things like sanction Putin himself personally and his oligarchs, ministers, things like that, state banks. The Russian central bank is now prohibited from doing business with Canadian institutions and with many institutions all over the world. So that means that Russia's central bank can't buy U.S. dollars, can't buy euros, can't buy other currencies that it would use then to, you know, purchase weapons or continue to supply its armies. And certainly, you know, these sanctions keep escalating. So that's the sort of financial side of it. The other side of it is to keep offering weapons and support and tools to the Ukrainian forces. So I think the general push of the Western effort is to make sure that, A, Russia is suffering financially, that its economy will suffer, that people in Russia will see that what their leadership is doing is leading to real problems at home. Mm -hmm. Because so many payment transfers and processes have been removed from Russia, it's things like, you know, we all sort of take for granted credit cards, Apple Pay, Google Pay, things like that have stopped working inside of Russia because those companies aren't doing business there anymore. There's sort of a two-sided front to this, the economic pain that they are definitely trying to inflict and the military tools to Ukraine. I mean, the end goal with sanctions is to cripple their economy to the point where it's seen that this incursion into Ukraine is seen as a no-win situation and they back off. Are there any concerns that Russia could try and circumvent these sanctions or rules? There was talk of cryptocurrency, things like that. Or are these measures the kind of thing that will make people even in Russia take notice? I think there are usually almost always ways to circumvent sanctions. But the effort to do that is considerable and it takes a toll. So, you know, one of the big things was this sanctioning of the Russian central bank. Mm -hmm. Putin expected a Western response to his invasion of Ukraine. It's clear. Oil prices have been high. Russia exports oil and gas. So he has been building a war chest for specifically this purpose, expecting this response. He wanted a cushion. But now that central bank can really only do business inside of Russia and as well as a number of smaller economies around the world. It's, it's going to be increasingly difficult for them to buy anything overseas. And that's going to make it difficult to circumvent these sanctions. Looking at the military efforts that Canada and other countries have made in relation to Ukraine, again, we don't have boots on the ground who are fighting in this fight, but we are sending equipment and supplies and weapons to Ukrainian military. Russian President Vladimir Putin has suggested that they consider that just the same as a Canadian or an American firing these weapons. Is there concern among Canadian officials about the escalation of this conflict by supplying weapons to the Ukrainian army, or do they figure that this is the best way to deter Russia from utterly running over the Ukrainian military and conquering the country? Yeah. I mean, I will say the first off, the Canadian officials, the defense minister in particular, have been very clear. Canadian troops on the ground in Ukraine is not an option. That is not something we're going to consider you hear some talk online about the idea of creating a no-fly zone. You know, that would put NATO forces and Russian forces in combat with each other, mm -hmm. which is something the Cold War spent 50 years trying to make sure didn't happen. Because frankly, the escalation of that takes us to some very scary places and sometimes very quickly. So there's been no talk of that. In terms of Vladimir Putin's remarks that a Canadian-funded weapon shooting at a Russian 
a soldier is the same as a Canadian soldier shooting at that Russian shoulder. I don't know where that goes from that. I think the world doesn't know if he is serious about that, unfortunately, and you have to sort of deal with that as it comes. But since he made those comments, I've heard nothing from Canadian officials that they intend to stop supplying Ukraine with weapons if that's what Ukraine needs. We'll be right back. Now, one of the other things that was announced Monday was a ban on Russian oil exports to Canada. This has kind of come in the wake of other announcements of bans on Russian products. I know provinces have said we're not going to allow Russian liquor on store shelves. How significant is the Russian oil ban? Is Russia's oil exports to Canada a significant portion of our imports, or is it a smaller amount compared to other countries like the U.S. or Venezuela or Saudi Arabia? No, it's it's really not. We haven't imported a drop of Russian oil since 2019, to put it in context. And even then, it was a pretty small percentage of our imports back then. But, you know, Canada was one of the first countries in the world to do it, which is obviously easier to do when you don't import Russian oil. Mm -hmm. But it starts something potentially that other countries may look at it the same way. As I talked off the top, Vladimir Putin developed this war chest before coming into this conflict that was largely funded by Russian oil and gas. You know, Russia, despite its vast size, its incredible natural wealth, is an oil and gas dependent economy almost exclusively. Russia's GDP is lower than countries like Romania and Turkey. Hmm. For a country that is that big, with that many people, with that much natural wealth, and also with a lot of scientific expertise, it is a failing economy by really any measure. So any effort to take that one part of their economy that you know, is still valuable, the oil and gas sector, and minimize it is going to have a big impact. We saw already Germany cutting off a gas pipeline. That was a major decision for the Germans because Russian gas is, is really central to their energy supply. But, you know, that was an $11 billion pipeline project that essentially ended the day Russia walked into Ukraine. After several days of this conflict, it's, I think, one of the first major conflicts that's being fought on TikTok, or you're seeing from Twitter, horrible videos of armored vehicle rolling over a civilian car, missile hitting an apartment block, things like that. These are just some horrific images. A lot of people are wondering the why of all this. And I don't want to touch too much on the why, but I know you've done some reporting. You've spoken to some foreign affairs, international relations experts, and there is a lot of talk about why and whether it's Vladimir Putin being a former KGB agent, an officer in the Soviet regime, wanting to see the reunification of Russia and some of the breakaway republics. What were some experts talking to you about the reasons behind this? Is it to get this Soviet motherland together, a unified Russia involves places like Belarus and Ukraine, or is it concern about... Ukraine potentially joining NATO and having NATO forces right on his border. What are some of the motives behind this, according to some of these experts? To start with, we know what Vladimir Putin has said publicly. He said 
that he sort of views Ukraine as not a legitimate country, that it doesn't have its own history, that it has really always been part of Russia and should be again. Mm-hmm. And certainly he's also said publicly that, you know, one of the worst things to happen to Russia was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And you can tell that there's a longing for those times when Russia was more of a force in the world. But as I talked about before, you know, the Russian economy is not where an economy with that many built-in natural advantages should be. And Ukraine is right on Russia's doorstep and while has plenty of problems of its own, is a burgeoning democracy and a real one uh, with actual elections and change. You know, a country that is modernizing, that is growing, that is looking westward in terms of not just NATO membership, but also EU membership. President Zelensky signed an application to join the EU during the conflict just yesterday, I believe. And they are pushing westward. And and that's something that I think really challenges Russia and especially Vladimir Putin. Because, you know, while it is not there yet, a successful, prosperous, stable Western style democracy on Russia's borders creates real problems for Putin. It will have his citizens looking next door and wondering why we don't have that. Well, I mean, Russian citizens are already protesting this war. And I think a lot of people are wondering why they don't have democracy in Russia when, you know, his opponents are locked up in jail and there's political assassinations that happen routinely tied to the Russian regime. Looking at this more broadly, obviously Canada has a role to play in this as a Western economy, and there are ways that we can leverage strength as a group. Ultimately, this has to be a united approach. Do Canadian officials have a sense as to what more can be done to target Russia without taking us to the brink of a wider conflict? Or is it a wait and see how these measures have worked so far before deciding we need to implement more? Canadian officials are not necessarily telling us exactly what they're going to do and what the next step might be, because, of course, that would be telling everybody what they're going to do next. Mm-hmm. I think they've taken a lot of steps. You know, the foreign affairs minister was talking over the weekend, and I think this is very much true. She was saying that the West has really responded in unison and forcefully to this Russian aggression in a way that a lot of people didn't predict would happen. You know, we talked about that German natural gas pipeline, the Nord Stream 2. Up until the moment Russia invaded Ukraine, it was unclear if Germany was actually prepared to cut that off. Mm -hmm. Some of the other steps that have been taken, you know, some of them are minor, but you never would have expected they would happen. Stuff like Russia will no longer be allowed to compete at the World Cup. You know, Russia is going to be banned from the International Hockey Federation. Those are sports things and not a huge deal. But on the other side of that scale, in terms of, you know, Germany a country which has tried to be a pacifist country, really, since the end of World War II, has announced it's going to drastically increase its defense spending. It's going to reach the NATO target of 2% next year is its goal. And it's spending the equivalent of last year's defense budget all at once this year on top of that. Mm -hmm. A bunch of countries that were traditionally neutral have decided they won't be neutral in the face of this. Finland, right next door to Russia, is talking about, for the first time in its history, maybe exploring NATO membership. So there's a lot happening here that not a lot of people would have expected would. So there aren't that many steps left to take. There's 
the possibility, of course, of withdrawing our diplomats. You know, the Canadian government has so far said that they're not prepared to take that step. And, you know, we'll have to see how this keeps going. Right now, I think short of boots on the ground, which for a lot of good reasons you want to avoid, the West is doing everything that it can. Well, the country is watching, the world is watching to see how this all unfolds and to see if these sanctions and these measures have the desired effect. Ryan, thanks for your time. No problem. 103 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest Ryan Tumulty. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.